0: Again, good morning and good to see you. And if you and I haven't met, my name is Brian Haybig, one of the pastors here. So glad you're here. So glad that um, we could be together this morning. Just to let you know what we're up to, we, uh, we did what a lot of churches did. The last two Sundays we looked at, at uh, passages related to Easter, resurrection, um, Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of the week, so that's been the last two Sundays, and then the Sunday before that, mid-March, I think Jake mentioned this, that we, we thought about adoption and orphan care. We're going to have a prayer time tomorrow related to that, that emphasis, but anyway, all that to say, we had been studying a New Testament book, and we've been away from it for three weeks, so I want to pick it back up and conclude this morning. Um, if you haven't been here, we've been looking this winter and early spring at Colossians, And Colossians is a book in the New Testament. It's by the Apostle Paul. It's not very long. And uh, just by way of review, it's written to Christians in Colossae, or some people might say Colossae. That would be in modern-day Western Turkey and uh, would have been considered Asia Minor. Not a very big city. And this is a group of Christians that the Apostle Paul uh, had not met, at least yet. Uh, apparently what happened when he was preaching in a major city near there, Ephesus, a guy named Epaphras heard him and, uh, and believed in Jesus and understood the gospel and took the gospel to Colossae. And people believed and people became Christians and a small church formed and Paul heard about it and he wrote them this letter. So that's how, that's how it came to be, but he hasn't met them. And he's writing from prison. That's going to come up in the passage. Uh, I'm going to read this brief part from chapter four, and then the very last verse. Just want you to hear the very last verse when we finish. But he mentions being in chains, in, uh, in, in prison chains. Uh, you know, I've mentioned this earlier. It is, it's hard to get a really fine-tuned answer about what is going on with the Colossians because it seems like Paul is addressing something that's off that he knows about. And and people have written Ph.D. dissertations and scholarly books about this, and there's not just total agreement. But what, what seems to be the case is that this group of people, early Christians, believe in Jesus, that they've been affected by either some teacher or teachers who've inserted these other elements. And it seems to have elements of maybe Jewish mysticism Uh, maybe even kind of supernatural beliefs from that part of the world, and it just kind of ends up being this broth. And apparently this teacher or teachers have said something along these lines that, look, that's great that you believe in Jesus, but if you want to kind of take it to the next level, or if you want a deeper spiritual fullness, you know, sort of if Jesus got you 80% of the way there, but you want the other 20%, then you need to, this is where you need to go. And one reason we think that must have been said is because Paul, in this letter, he keeps using the language of filled and full and fullness, as if to say, uh, there is no secret vault that just only a few people get to. If you have Jesus, you have it all. And it's funny, I didn't notice this in the first service, but when we were singing that last song, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners, now I have sung that song a bunch, and I never noticed this lyric, it says... Uh, Jesus, I do now receive him more than all in him I find. You can't get more than all. But, you know, I mean, I think Paul would say, yep, I like that lyric. Uh, Every spiritual blessing is in Jesus. And, you know, the Colossians, they're living in a cultural context where, like, maybe this is not a big deal to us, but possessing wisdom and knowledge would be extremely attractive. I mean, I know we want to be smart, but we tend to not talk about wisdom. And in this letter, he says, Look, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus. There's not some secret archive, some secret scroll. It's all in Christ. And so he, in this letter, he does this thing that Paul likes to do in his letters. And if you haven't read much of the New Testament, this can actually help you understand Paul's letters, which is a lot of the New Testament. He tends to put the teachy doctrine part at the beginning. And then the second part tends to be, all right, now so what? Like if this is true, then what would that mean for our lives? And in the weeks leading up to when we, when we took a break, uh, we, we looked at, all right, if the gospel is true, if this news really is as good as we say that it is, how would that impact family life? How would that impact uh, children or parents, whether you have children of your own, just being in a, in a family yourself? How, how does this impact the workplace, whether you're the employer or the employee? How does, how does the gospel impact everything? But at this point in the letter, it's as if Paul says, all right, now, last question. What about your friends in Colossae? And what about the rest of the world? In other words, what about people who are not in the church? And I don't mean this local church or that local church. I mean the Lord's church, the Holy Catholic Church, like the Apostles' Creed says. If the good news is this good, and if we have it, and we believe it, and we are this full, we have this much fullness, then what would that mean for the outsider? Let's look at what he says. Colossians chapter 4 beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then the closing, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, now help us to continue worshiping. We have sung and we've said your word out loud and we have prayed and we will pray. And we've confessed our sins and we've heard you assure us of the good news. And we get to come to your table in just a bit. But help us to, to worship you even in the way that we listen and we know for that to happen that you you have to enable us. So we're saying, please open us up. Open our hearts, our ears to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want <clears throat> to excuse me. I, I want to start out and, and acknowledge to you a frustration that I have with my job. And just so you know, this is not about to get weird. It's not with any of you. <clears throat> Uh, it's not with any church members, and it's not with any staff, and it's not with any elders or deacons. In fact, that's going to sort of be the point. Um, when you think about what pastors do, and even as I'm talking, and I'm talking from my perspective, but this would be true of our other pastors, uh, Jake and, and Adam and Jonathan, that, uh, you know, we, like we have job descriptions, and, and there, there is a job description to being a pastor. And some of the biggies would be, first off, uh, teaching. And, preaching. and uh, even if it's not our time to be up here in front of you on a Sunday, we're probably working on something else that we're teaching or preparing for. It. Does everybody know we don't download these from the, the Internet? Like, we do actually study the passages and try to get in there and, and uh, think of examples and how to apply it. So, anyway, so, so we're working on that. It takes time. And then uh, there's, you know, this goes by different names. There's pastoring or shepherding, in other words, like being with people, not just being a talking head. And that, that kind of runs the gamut. That could be you and I having coffee or lunch, and I'm just kind of saying, how are you? And uh, how can I pray for you? And just catching up. Or it may be that really it's, there's a real trial or something's really hard. And, um, and we're going to try to walk together through this really hard thing. So it runs the gamut. And, and all four of us do that. And, uh, and you know, like every job, there's emails and there's texts and, and um, all that kind of stuff, admin sort of stuff that you have to do. So that's just kind of meat and potatoes. If you looked at our week and our month, that's just the big, big, big sections of it. And those are all supposed to be there. But there's this other thing that is supposed to be and that is in my job description, and it frustrates me. And I'm not saying it frustrates me because it's not supposed to be there. I'm frustrated that it just keeps being the sacrificial lamb. And it's evangelism. And I don't know how that word hits you, evangelism. I don't know if that makes you think of televangelists or someone very demonstrative on Main Street or or, or what. But I just mean that in the best sense of somebody sharing the good news. That this is really good. And that's how good news is. You want to share it. Somebody asked me not long ago, what sermon... Uh, have you gotten the most feedback about of all your sermons? And I said, I I don't know which sermon it was, but I know what part of which sermon. One time I I used an example. I had a friend that said, hey, you need to get this bottle of red wine. It costs 12 bucks, but it tastes like a $50 bottle of wine. And I mentioned that in a sermon. I can't even remember what I was illustrating. And for months, years, follow-up emails, calls, now, our church is interested in inexpensive wine that tastes good, apparently. <laughs> and it's like, okay, this is good news. We need to talk about it and we need to engage this and let's share it when we find out. But, but that, that is how good news is. So I would say an evangelist in the best sense is somebody that Jesus really is, is wonderful news for them. They're not trying to win the argument with them. They are sharing great news. And um, I just find that more often than not... Now evangelism takes place here. We never assume that everyone in the room believes. And that gives us such joy that there are those in the room who believe and those who don't believe. But I mean being intentional and pursuing and engaging and, and really becoming more friends with those who don't believe and, and being I'll use the word again, intentional, that that's the thing that keeps getting the shaft. And I suspect that I'm not the only Christian in the room who struggles with it. And it may not be you know, part of your official vocation, whatever your vocation is, but if you are a Christian, it is part of that vocation to, to be a vessel Good news. I'm not talking about a canned presentation, but I mean to share this great news. So let me ask you this if God changed us, like if the gospel was so good, even for people who are crummy at sharing, if it changed us, what would that involve? And I want to look at this passage to answer that question, and I want to think about two things. All right, it would involve praying. And it would involve what i'm gonna, what i 'm going to call approaching right, praying and approaching let 's look at this first about praying. look in verse two. first off, Paul just kind of generally talks about prayer, not specifically evangelism but but just just prayer as Christians, verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer. You could translate that devote yourselves to prayer. This is not shoehorn it in, maybe if it fits, or tack it on with a meal, or maybe at the end of the day, but this is that, that it become part of the infrastructure of your life. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And, and so what would characterize that? He says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And it's interesting that the New Testament talks a lot about watching And being watchful. Jesus talked about that and the apostles talk about that. And Christians typically don't talk about that. Being a watchful person. And what does it mean to pray watchfully? Does that mean like we're just in this DEFCON 5, pins and needles, uh, stance? No. For Paul, to be watchful is to mean that you live your life anticipating that Jesus really will return that this chapter of history will come to an end and an eternity will follow. Whatever your beliefs are, that is going to be true for every human being. That Jesus really will come back. And what that means is that we don't have to live in a pressure cooker or be on pins and needles, but it means that right now we live with a sense of urgency. I can't make someone be a Christian I don't need to try to trash talk somebody into being a Christian. I'll get to that in a second. But in the the language of the New Testament, today is the day of salvation. Today is. So that I pray that way. And that I think about my life that way. I'm not going to be here forever. And neither will you. And neither will anybody that I encounter. So I'm watching. And I have thanksgiving. Yeah, I'm not in a panic state all the time, but but I'm saying thank you to God for the things that He's doing all around me. And we've said this before that it seems like, especially for Paul, gratitude is like the fish oil of your insides, of your soul. That Like, it does all these great things and when in doubt, thank God for something. So he says, look, all right, first off, comprehensively, be a person of prayer. But then... He does turn an eye to, but what about the outsider? Now look at, look at verse uh, 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, when he says us, who does Paul mean? Uh, we're, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage here. You're at a disadvantage because we've been looking at Colossians over a long period of time. That's not how they heard it. This letter would have been just read in one sitting or somebody would have probably read it in one sitting. So just a few minutes ago, they heard the beginning of the letter. And at the beginning of the letter, Paul says, Paul and Timothy. And that was his spiritual son. Uh, Paul was like Timothy's spiritual father and mentor, this young pastor. So Paul and Timothy write this letter together. There's Epaphras, the guy that took the gospel, apparently, to this city. So that's us. But, but Paul's probably talking also about the apostles that, that went all over the world into cities where there, there are no churches. There there is no Sunday school background with anybody. And they spread the gospel. So he says, Pray for us. Pray that God this is really great. Pray that God would open the door. And he says that in some of his other letters, as if to say, Hey, look, if God doesn't open it, the door is closed. It may be closed in the region. It may be closed with that individual. There are still closed doors. North Korea is a closed door to the gospel. I'm not saying God can't get it in there or that He never gets it in there. I'm saying their stance is that the door is closed. Paul says pray for us. Now, a couple of things here. One is... And I I said to the 830 service, I feel like I should be telling you this all the time, but this is an occasion to kind of scream it from the rooftops. So I'm going to scream it from the rooftops. On behalf of myself and Jake and Jonathan and Adam, please pray for us. Please. Please pray for preachers the ones here and whatever other ones you know or want to pray for man we need you to pray for us and we could list a lot of ways that you need to pray for us but I, here's here's two from the passage one is to be clear I, man this i mean this is paul world class mind world class education i'd say fairly solid understanding of the gospel I'm being understated when I say that. Verse 4, he says, Pray that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I tell you, it does not take a lot of study or prep to preach an unclear sermon. (laughs) Behold, I have preached many. uh, Nor a long sermon. You know, what's hard to preach is a concise, clear message. Uh, It's easy to kind of like use big words and sort of use jargon to make make people feel like you're on top of things. But to really put, as I've heard it said, to really put the cookies on the bottom shelf takes God's blessing. Please pray for us that we would be clear that God would make that happen. And the other one is that God would open the door. And here's here's the negative way you could look at that. I just said it. If God doesn't open the door, the door is closed. And it doesn't matter how cool your illustrations are or how cool your movie quotes are or how great the explanation was or the Greek and the Hebrew that you studied. It It doesn't matter. It will not go in. But here's the positive side. Man, if God opens the door, anybody can hear. Anybody can believe. I hope that your own experience resonates with that. I, mean, I hope that, that if you're a believer in Jesus, that you're able to say, you know, if, if God could open the door with me, He can open the door with, with anybody. And it's so exciting to think about, what if He opened doors that we just can't imagine? What if in our context, people walked in this room that had never been to anything like this and heard the good news and believed in Jesus and were baptized and followed him and became part of this community, and it blew our minds. Because I worked with that guy or I lived near that guy. I went to school with that guy. But notice how all the non-Christians are men. That was interesting just now. But, you know, or her. And I can't believe that they believe this. But if God opens the door, that happens. So please pray for us. Pray that God will open the door. And you know, for for community groups, I want to say this too. When uh, not all of you are in a community group, most of our membership is, which is we're very thankful for that. All of them look a little bit different, but generally get together, eat, catch up, talk about the passage from the prior Sunday and then pray. Pray pray for each other. Pray with each other. We've got to do that. We we have got to have avenues where we say, hey look, this is uh, is going on in my work or in my family or with my health or just a personal, uh, or this is something I'm celebrating, and to pray for each other. We've got to do that, right? But my exhortation is from what Paul is saying We've got to be careful when we're in that living room or in that den that everything isn't about us. But that prayer goes out. I know I'm saying the Lord hears the prayer. But I mean, that our interest, our focus is not just my job, my family, my children, my needs, my struggles. We've got to pray for that. But can we pray with watchfulness? Christ will come, whether it's in our lifetime or a long time from now. And my health concern is important, but you know what? The movement of the gospel through our cities is a bigger deal than my just individual struggle. And we need to pray for that. So we're praying. But here's the second thing, and I'm calling this approaching. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And Paul uses this metaphor in several of his letters where he he calls your life walking. And it's a very Jewish way of talking. It sounds like Psalms. It sounds like Proverbs and other parts of Scripture that your life is a walk. And it's really a great image because it's saying, you know, you don't just arrive at something in a second. And you don't live your life just in some swath. It's bit by bit, step, step, step. That's how real life is. So he says, all right, right, you're in your life, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, I feel like I need to tell you how that verse has sounded to me and then what, what it actually says. To me, the way that has sounded is like, okay, I'm going to walk in wisdom toward, when he says outsiders, he means people outside the church, Outside belief in Jesus that means like I'm going to be so together, I'm going to be so um likable, I'm going to be so uh smart and engaging that they'll just kind of basically see my awesomeness and they 'll want to believe Almost, like so in other words, kind of just walk through society with your Jedi masterness. And they will be drawn to you and and to Jesus. Okay, now, that's not what the passage means. And it it really gave me joy to just see this simple sentence in Greek, in the original. And any time one of us shares something like Greek or Hebrew, we're, we're not showboating. It's to say, if this helps clarify something, let's clarify it. And the best is when... Let's clarify it. And this is joyful. This one gave me joy. This is my favorite part. This is my favorite part of my sermon. (laughs) Is Is in Greek, it simply says, in wisdom, walk toward outsiders. And what does that mean? Paul is saying, all right, there's something I want you to do in wisdom, meaning... You can't do this in your own resources. This takes a God-given wisdom, what I'm about to tell you. So in wisdom, here's what I want you to do. Walk toward outsiders. That is a game changer. And I'm not saying this to be snarky. This is just to be cognizant of where we live and our cultural setting. That sounds so different than fundamentalism. Because you know, there's all kinds of fundamentalism. There's Christian fundamentalism, there's Jewish fundamentalism, there's Islamic fundamentalism, and I'm sure there's other kinds. But the DNA of fundamentalism, fundamentalism is separatism. It's not primarily about a dress code or this external behavior. Those kind of things get talked about and applied. But the essence of fundamentalism is to withdraw from the unbeliever or the infidel or whatever word you want to use, to be with the true believers, to withdraw from the world, and to set up parallel institutions over here. And here's the Apostle Paul, who is big on holiness, who is big on devotion, wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And he is saying, Walk toward the outsider. And look at a couple of the things he says that would involve. Or let's put it this way. If I'm going to do that with wisdom, what would, what would wisdom look like to walk toward outsiders? First one. Verse 5. Making the best use of the time. We could call this being intentional. And it's interesting because I almost feel like, ooh, this is where... He's, he's talking our American language here. He's talking about time optimization. Time management. Making the best use of the time. What is he saying? If you're hearing all this and thinking, I, I, don't, I don't know what outsider you, you want me to talk to. Do you want me to drive to like some strange part of Greenville that I don't know about and start engaging people about Jesus? Paul is saying, okay, wait. You already have next door neighbors. You already have for most of you, co-workers. You already have things you like to do or activities that you're involved in, whether it's in Greenville or beyond. And there are others who are there. Start there. I mean, unless your work is that you're out in the middle of a field by yourself with an iPad, your workplace may have people sitting around you and as it turns out, they're human beings. And as it turns out, they matter. And as it turns out, what, what we're being called, here, called to do here is not like make them into projects like, okay, I'll try you on and I'll do my evangelistic presentation with you. And if you like it, then you can come to my church. And if not, I'll move, kick you to the curb and move on to the next person. No, that is not walking with wisdom. But it's to look up and say, okay... I don't want to be the judge, but I, I don't know if this neighbor knows Jesus. And to relate to that person. Or, uh, you know, I met this other mom because uh, we, we met each other at a play date. Our children had a, had a play date. I, I, I don't know where she's coming from. You know, like when a coworker shares a struggle, it's, it's probably our... <laughs> probably our propensity to say, oh, wow, that was your, like, bad things going on story. Let me tell you my bad things going on story and kind of, like, top your bad things going on story because that's what we do in conversations. But what if you listened? What if we listened and prayed for that person and maybe even circled back and said, look, I, I just want you to know, I, I thank you for sharing that with me. I'm praying for you. And you know what else we might be praying and we might not tell them this part is... That, Lord, don't just open up a door for preachers, but would you open up a door with that person? And let me or someone else be a vessel of the good news to that person? But to be intentional. I, most of us eat three meals a day, or at least two. We could bring someone with us, or we could meet someone. We could be intentional and make the most of the time that we have because it's limited and then we pass. But it's also being gracious. Look at what he says in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What does that mean for your speech to be gracious? Uh, I'm going to use Paul as an example. Have you ever read... It's in the book of Acts about when Paul went into Athens, Greece. This is the Athens, Greece. And it says he walked in and there's, there's just statues and idols everywhere. Statues and monuments to false gods. And it said it just flew all over him and it, he was distraught. And so Paul, get, I mean this is Paul. Not, not big on idolatry. And so he's invited to speak at the public speaking area called the Areopagus. And so he stands up and he says, men of Athens. And when you're reading this, if you know Paul, you might be thinking, whoo, here it comes. This is going to be like a thermonuclear strike. And he stands up and he says, men of Athens, I can see that you're very religious. I was walking around your city and I even saw a monument to the unknown God. And I would like to tell you about that God. Not trash talking, not combative, gracious. Uh, And he says, seasoned with salt. Have you ever tasted a chocolate chip cookie made without salt? It tastes like a hockey puck. And it can have everything else. It can have the sugar and the chocolate chips and the flour and the butter. Nature's perfect foods. But without salt, it tastes bad. You put salt in there, tastes like a chocolate chip cookie. Paul says, your speech should not be this dull, boring, duty-bound, I'm going to tell you about Jesus because our balding pastor says that I should, and I'm going to drone through it, and then I can check that box and, and go watch the master's. Like to be cognizant of what people are watching, to be cognizant of good humor, to be cognizant of what people are reading and how normal people talk, and to speak in an interesting way that draws and engages, that's interesting, and that's kind. Paul says, talk that way. If every Christian in this room did that with one person this year, it would be fascinating to know what the ripple effects would be. I don't mean project, but to be intentional and to pray for, to pursue, and to relate to. And if the Lord opened the door to share the good news with one person who's already in our lives. Let me end with this. Um, this, this made an impression on me, and so I'm going to share it. It may make an impression on you, but a friend of mine, he was a campus minister at the same time I was. He was a campus minister on a large Southern university, and uh, there was a group of students one year, freshmen, and they came from the same hometown and they came from the same church, and they had grown up in a church where they really had heard good stuff. They really had good preaching, good teaching, they had a great youth group, just great connection. So they showed up as freshmen and they just sort of had this super Christian relational network that most, most people wouldn't have. And so, you know, it's almost like 13th grade. They just get there and they can still do stuff together and eat and hang out and go on road trips and all that. So my friend watched this for a while and thought, you know, it's amazing what they have. But after a while, he began to be concerned to the point where he finally talked with some of them. And he said that, I don't know if this image was original to him, but I love this. He said, God really gave you an amazing gift, the the friendships that you have. But it's like there's a group of you and your group is holding hands in a circle and you're sort of looking at each other. Like, this is awesome. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful that we can eat together and go places and we can walk across campus and room together and all those things. He said, I'm so glad you have that. But what about the rest of the campus? He said, what if you did this? What if you... I'm not saying don't hold hands, but what if you... Instead of the circle turned this way, what if you kept holding hands and you faced out? Because you need each other. But people need the good news of Jesus. And you have it. And you don't have it so that we can just hoard it and gorge ourselves on it and not share it. We have it because we need it and it's for sharing. And that helped, that has helped me. Have you turned inward? I mean, if you have a real Christian friend or group of Christian friends, you're blessed. And I would say prioritize that and foster that. But if all our meals and all the kids' play dates and all the lunch get-togethers and all the go-out-of-town trips, if that's always with these Christian people Our circle is turned inward. Let's hold hands with the body, but let's face out. Let's pray, and let's walk toward. Amen.